And so I think part of my what feels important to me is to let it be known that what I might present on the surface is not necessarily what I'm feeling on the inside. And if I can name that, maybe you can too. And if we can both name that, then maybe we can build community together that feels more authentic than what we've previously experienced. I believe every person deserves kindness in their lives. I believe kindness has the power to change us from the inside out, to change the world beginning with you and me. And that's why I wanted to create a show called Self-Kindness, Self-Kindness with Pete. It's about figuring out how kindness towards ourselves can be our superpower, how kindness is more than just a reward at the end of the day. It's about living clear lives, focused lives, motivated by loving concern, rather than motivated by fear and anxiety. It's about how we make that change. How does self-kindness show up the moment we need it the most? You are so worthy of the kindness that's already in you. And each week, we'll be exploring how to do that with people who are leading this kindness awakening in their own lives. My name is Pete Sibley, and I'm so grateful you're here. Hello and welcome to another Self-Kindness with Pete. I am Pete Sibley. So grateful as always that you are joining me to listen to a conversation about self-kindness. I believe, and the reason why I started this podcast is that we get inspired by hearing other people's stories. You know, in this moment, especially in 2020, we turn on the news and it's it's in our face. We are bring our kids to school and reminded of of just so much going on in the world and and if we don't have a self-kindness practice or we had been thinking about getting into mindfulness and meditation or about joining a, a community of people that that can bring us back to connecting with that that deeper spiritual or sense of of peace and groundedness in the world then you know we may feel a bit overwhelmed or anxious or have a sense of unrest, even if we have that community around us. So we come to these types of podcasts to be inspired. I'm so grateful you're here. One thing that I'm reminded of is that all my guests point to self-kindness as a practice. It's something to come back to again and again and again, something to grow into. And I want to share with you that reminder as you listen and as you hear these people speak and maybe something speaks to you that reminder that several of my guests and myself included we talk about how we don't have to go it alone that could be a human tendency to want to be the martyr to want to you know not burden another person maybe or feel like you're out of the loop somehow by the experience that you're having and I want to turn that around and say, that's just not true, first of all. Second of all, we don't have to go it alone. Because in fact, when we share those moments, when we are vulnerable and exposed with those moments, you know, all of my guests point to that as a strength. It's, it is just turned around over and over again. It's a strength. It's a place that brings us together rather than separates us what ends up separating us is when we go in and we hold it and we don't allow 
that self-kindness to take root in our own lives. So how do we do that? How do we do that on purpose? How do we have that kindness meet the challenge in the moment? Well, hopefully you get some inspiration from these podcasts and come on over to PeteSibley.com or check out the conversation at Self-Kindness with Pete about ways to make that happen in real time. You're so worthy of that. And I want that message to come across crystal clear in each podcast that first and foremost, this is about you, the listener, learning how to make that a practice in real time. So send me a message or email me any questions or or even ideas that you might want to hear on this podcast. And again, this podcast exists partially for me to have this incredible conversation and chance to talk with these amazing people that are the guests on the show. And partly for you, I would love to hear that feedback. And would you rate this podcast? Would you share this podcast? If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can actually rate it as I'm talking right now. Just go down and click that five stars. It would mean so much to help keep getting this self-kindness conversation out there into the world, to help get guests out there into the world in a greater light, like my guest today. So I am so excited to introduce my guest today, Delma Jackson. Delma is a senior fellow at the Center for Whole Communities. He is an activist, a facilitator, a writer, a counselor, and lecturer. Delma has lectured on various topics across multiple venues, including NYU's Tisch School for Performing Arts, Toledo University's Graduate School for Criminal Justice, Yale's School of Forestry and Environmental Studies, and twice at the National Conference on Race and Ethnicity in Higher Education. I'm so excited for you to hear this conversation with Delma. So without further ado. So welcome, Delma Jackson, to Self-Kindness with Pete. Super grateful that you're here today. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Thank you for um, giving me some space in, in this important work that you're doing. <laughs> well, appreciate that. We'll, we'll see about important, but uh, <laughs> so to jump in, you know, we have we have a common uh, thread together in that we are both connected in some way to the Center for Whole Communities. But mm-hmm. I would love to, before we get into that, maybe just if you could tell us a little bit about you and the work you're doing in the world right now. And, and why did you say yes to a conversation with me today about self-kindness? Yeah, I appreciate the question. Um, yeah, so I am with the Center for Whole Communities and have been now for close to a decade in some form or fashion. As of late January, I've been working full-time with CWC, primarily responsible for cultivating a story, both in terms of putting a lot of energy into writing and blogging for the organization, um, but very much through my own worldview, through my lens but also trying to work toward cultivating the stories of folks in the broader communities that we move through. And finally, I would say even learning how to better tell the story of what we as an organization do to the rest of the world. Mm. Like I said, I've been with CWC for close to a decade. I definitely am a firm believer in our work, but it's the kind of work 
when you're talking about transformation and change, so much of it is on a personal level, intrapersonal, interpersonal level, that it's not always easy to quantify and it's not always easy to convey. And so mm. a big part of what I'm trying to undertake is to figure out how to translate what it is that we do out to the broader world in the hopes that A, uh, they would see the importance in this work and, and be moved to support us, um, but also mm -hmm. to feel challenged to maybe take on that work for themselves, whether it's with us or even in their own you know, circles of influence. So right. yeah, um, outside of that, um, independently, I do a lot of workshops for various organizations around the country with a heavy focus on equity, with a heavy focus on a racial justice lens, um, but increasingly a focus on a more intersectional approach to justice. So a lot of workshopping, a lot of lecturing, mm -hmm. a lot of facilitating mm -hmm. and writing. So it's, it's kind of a whole bag. Yeah, oh, I love that. So, so how does self-kindness tie into any of that? And is, are the words that you use, do you use self-kindness? Oh yeah, self-care is probably the phrase that I find myself using the most. But I would say that in all of this work, and it's kind of reflected in this, this larger Americana that, that I'm coming up in, in my understanding of even our founding documents, right? The imperfection of it all. Um, but the idea that, um, to riff off a phrase that Obama just used recently, um, within this imperfect document, you have this North Star, right? You have this guiding light that's calling us to show up better and better every day. Mm -hmm. And I think as individuals, as communities, as organizations, that's always the challenge. And when I was first, I guess, politicized, for lack of a better term, in undergrad, there was so much judginess attached to it, right? I went from one extreme to the other and had very little tolerance for uh, what I perceived as the mistakes of others um, or the missteps of others. And I thought at 20, 21 years old, I had it all figured out, you know. Right. And it always reminds me of uh, that Rumi piece where he talks about the idea that when I was younger, I wanted to change the world. And now that I'm, you know, a little older, a little wiser, I seek to change myself. And I mm -hmm. think a big part of evolving has to in invoke a sense of kindness to self. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. What we are incapable of extending to ourselves, we are incapable, I think, of extending to others. And so I think the greatest right. single thing that I can do, regardless of where I find my work and where I find my calling, is to center kindness to myself first, to allow myself to make mistakes, to get it wrong, mm -hmm. to humbly um, ask for forgiveness when necessary, correction, guidance, etc. But it all starts with me, you know. Mm. So allowing myself to make those mistakes, to recognize them for what they are, and to take them on with a sense of uh, inquiry and awe, as opposed to judgment mm. and criticism, I think is going to be key um, 
not only for my work, but for embodying the approach to this work that I would love to see other people and organizations be able to take on. Mm-hmm. Wow, Delma. Yeah. And, and so much in, in what you're, you're sharing it starts with you of recognizing those mistakes, going back to, you know, how you want the, the center for whole communities that, that work to, to be seen as valuable. Um, so I guess it's like, how do we share and, and make it available to other people that, you know, doing that self-reflection, recognizing your mistakes, like that's valuable to do that work. And then, you know, holding that as, as a way that we begin to be in conversation as a community, it's like, we got to start by looking at those mistakes, recognizing those mistakes. Mm-hmm. If, if we're going to do any evolving here, right? Yeah. I, how are you, you actively doing that work for you um, of mm-hmm. recognizing those mistakes before we get into that? I'm really curious because I think I resonate with you uh, about uh, anger and judgment uh, in my early twenties, you know, where I, I was coming from was, you know, I'm, white middle-class man the more i learned about what we were doing as a as a human culture to the environment and how that affected the earth that we lived on and the people who are living on it i you know i was just began to be filled with rage Mm -hmm. and and so it is you know it was different but but the rage i i feel like is is similar like rage is rage right and so but what I noticed, what I did with it is I tried to to really push it aside and get right into, I'm going to fix this world. Like I'm going to, like the world needs me to be its savior. Yeah. I don't know what, what came up for you in, in your experience of, you didn't call it rage, but you called it judgment and maybe anger. Yeah. So would you talk a little bit about that, that your twenties and, and how that came up and what it looked like? Yeah, I, um, came up in uh, Flint, Michigan, which I would say by the time I was old enough to really start getting some independence um, from my home, playing outside, playing a little further from home, et cetera. That is around the time that, you know, General Motors is moving out, the economy is collapsing, um, the drug trade is coming online. um, And with that, an increase in community violence. And so I'm navigating all of those shifts in my tween years, right? My early teens. And, but then having to navigate a private, predominantly white Catholic school system, K through 12. And so Mm. it felt like I was um, existing in two very different worlds with very different expectations, different rules, et cetera. And I'm noticing these differences across race and class comparing classmates to what I'm seeing when I go home every day in this predominantly black working class to poor community. And um, nobody is explaining to me why I'm seeing these differences other than what I'm picking up on television, et cetera. And my school system is not giving me any sort of insight into the history of housing, the history of race, more broadly and how it has 
help shape some of the circumstances that I'm seeing. So out of all of that comes some self-hatred developed, particularly around middle school. And if it hadn't been for an organization that I ended up joining in high school, which was composed of all black young men and led by a mentor uh, by the name of John Rhymes, had it not been for that group, which exposed me to young guys from the Flint school system, put me in touch with, you know, community in ways that going to school would not have. I think in a lot of ways that helped keep me sane because self-hatred mm. was, you know, kind of tearing me apart from the inside out. So I take all of that with me into undergrad and a couple of friends of mine kept pushing me to take uh, Afro studies course. I finally did. And from the very first day of class, so many things began to make sense all of a sudden where they didn't before. And a lot of the self-hatred that I had accumulated over time, I suddenly had a target outside of myself. And so um, I felt a tremendous amount of anger around being bamboozled by my school system, right? By mm. these folks determining that what felt so impactful for me was irrelevant for their curriculum, right? Mm. Um, I think I would have been a much better student, a much more engaged student, had some of this been brought to my attention sooner. And so there was a tremendous amount of rage. And I immediately, you know, just kind of cut ties with some of the uh, white associates that I had built up and just kind of distanced myself from white people more generally and just went to class every day um, taking these courses in Afro studies and just growing more and more angry. Joined the Black Student Union, became very vocal, but was definitely carrying a chip on my shoulder. And it was the work of Baldwin that I mm -hmm. read and him talking about leaving the U.S., going overseas. It was work, reading his work and having a uh, job in the Center for Study Abroad having a supervisor that was an African-American woman and a best friend of my African-American male who also worked there, she encouraged us to get out of the country for a while, you know, and she was discouraged by the fact that we had never thought about it. Like we had spent all of this time helping other students get overseas for their studies, but it never occurred to us that we could do the same thing because we just thought, you know, I was some white kids did. She encouraged us to, she scolded us and then encouraged us <laughs> And so I ended up going overseas. Um, we spent in the uh, Netherlands and it really gave me what I needed, right? I had opportunity after opportunity to kind of process what it means to be black in America because mm -hmm. there were so many Dutch people who upon finding out that I was American, that's all they wanted to talk about. Um, what does it mean to be American? What does it mean to be black in America, et cetera. And so, those countless encounters gave me the opportunity to really process a lot of my anger and to be out of an environment where my blackness felt so weighty in the way that it often can here in the States. Mm -hmm. Not that the Dutch are without their uh, white supremacist issues, by no means. They definitely have their work to do, but it's a different environment. It's a very different thing. And so I came back a little more healed, a little more ready to start engaging in the work. In some form or fashion, I've been at it, you know, ever since. 
thanks for sharing that because you know it maybe that your story speaks in in part to that idea of even in our own personal life if we are just so we don't even recognize the waters that we're swimming it as we're in it you know, when I talk with people, it's like there isn't even the, the awareness that they're just constantly telling the story over and over again before they kind of give themselves a practice or a way to step back a little bit. Mm-hmm. That's when you're able to kind of get some a new pers- perspective. And that's just fascinating that that you have to leave to be able to get that perspective for yourself. But but what a gift. I mean, we're, we all get to benefit from, from you doing that, that work mm. to, to kind of do that. And then now come back and bring that, that new perspective that's growing and has grown in you. So, so yeah, so, so you bring that back and I'm, I'm really curious, Delma, if you feel comfortable in sharing, what did that self-hatred sound like in your life? Cause I know what it sounded like in my life and with a lot of people that I work with, but what was it like for you? Yeah, um, just, I would say in a nutshell, just the sense that not only am I not quote unquote good enough or enough, but that um, my people, right, racially, we as a people, I'm, there's something inherently pathological about us, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. There's something inherently wrong with us. We're not as good as our white counterparts. And that was conveyed through, you know, class. It was conveyed even through the way I interpreted worship um, and the differences between church on Sunday and mass on Wednesdays with the school. Mm. There's something just inherently inferior. I mean, the, the overarching message of white supremacist culture had definitely done its job and had infiltrated every aspect of me because we lived in the community we lived in and because i believe that america was truly a meritocracy i looked around and i figured we all must just be collectively lazy people if we can't live under better circumstances than what we're seeing right now and that includes my own parents who uh were very hard working uh, my mom worked on the assembly line for 30 plus years before she retired my father was a registered nurse who also worked in a factory setting, teaching CPR, responding to emergencies, doing medical checkups, et cetera. My parents worked their tails off, right? But at mm-hmm. that time, my assumption was that had they worked harder, then we would live in a better neighborhood. We would have better uh, access to resources. We would feel more safe. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, mm-hmm. I was navigating gun violence on a regular basis and just trying to have some semblance of a childhood and unfortunately, accepting that this was just my lot in life because of my race and mm-hmm. not understanding all of the components that went into making that reality what it was. And so without context, I hated myself. I hated my parents. I hated my community. I hated anyone who looked like me because I couldn't understand why we couldn't just get it together, why we couldn't be as much as everyone else, as good as everyone else. Mm. And so I would say it was a pretty all-encompassing and pervasive sort of self-hatred that had you asked me just, you know, bluntly back then, do you hate yourself? I would have vehemently said no, right? I didn't recognize Mm. it as self-hatred. It's Mm. only in retrospect that that I see it for what it was. Mm. Mm. Yeah. 
Right, and to see it as as a story that was first it gets fed to us and then we just take it and internalize it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Exactly. And so like, you know, that, that points to gratefully that the wisdom of the ages, maybe the kindness of the ages is that we're all worthy, right? Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. if you hear that story and that's the only thing that's made available to you, boy, it's really hard to reconnect with that part of us that knows that on some level. Sure. Thank you for just really courageously and intimately right now to sharing that, Delma. You know, it definitely, well, it brings up a lot, but I guess what I'm curious about is is maybe just even continuing this this thread. So, so where is it or what do you recognize? What are some of the moments for you where that awareness begins to shift enough where suddenly you, Delma, are are worthy of, of getting a break? Where do, where do you start to give yourself a little bit of relief from that, that self-attack, that self-hatred? How does that start to look in your life? Yeah. Um, so, I, and, and that's a complicated thing, right? Because I think on some level, I'm still battling the, the self-worth piece, right? There are still pieces, and it's less connected to my race and just more about me as a human being, right? So on one level, I would say I still navigate fear. I still navigate, am I good enough? Why would anybody bother, you know, wanting to hear what I have to say or wanting to read what I have to write, et cetera? Um, there's a phrase for it that's escaping me right now, um, imposter syndrome, right? That's what it is. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's a pretty, a pretty ubiquitous place for folks, um, okay. unless they're you know, ego is super, super strong, you know, um, I think <laughs> right. a lot of us have that imposter syndrome piece. Um, and some of that is informed by, you know, a genuine desire to do good work, right? And always second guessing whether or not what you're doing is good enough. So I think there's some healthy aspects to it that keep keep us going and keep us questioning. But there's also, you know, some unhealthy aspects of self-loathing. I think wrapped up in that, but I would say, so I can, I can name that and then set that aside for a moment and say that I think the biggest thing that helped me, at least through my racial identity lens was to explore a, just how much of an effort it's taken to create and sustain all forms of oppression, starting with white supremacy in undergrad, right? That was my first lens through which I began looking at justice. And so the level of effort, money, resources, time that it's taken to build a white supremacy culture and to sustain that story over time um, spoke to my heart and let me know that it is a story that's been created, it can be uncreated. It is fragile, like all systems of oppression. It is both powerful and simultaneously fragile. And it is its fragility um, that is encouraging. So there's that. But mm. the I think the bigger piece for me was beginning to understand what my ancestors have done and the sense of responsibility that it created for me. I don't have time as much for self-loathing when I think about someone like a Harriet Tubman, who has not only escapes slavery, but then goes back into the South multiple times. Um, mm. 
in order to make sure that what she has gained, she can pass on to others, right? When I learn about the dedication of, you know, a Malcolm X who in the face of constant threats, particularly toward the end of his life, continue to show up, continue to engage in the work. I mean, there's no shortage of ancestry that as I'm learning through my studies, I'm imparted with a sense of deep responsibility to carry on this legacy. And so in the sense of feeling like I have to be busy on their behalf, there's less room in there for, oh, today was so hard, why bother, right? right. right. You better right. get over yourself, you know? Right. Um, but what I also noticed in that is that some of the um, ancestors, some of the elders that I was learning from, these are folks often in their 50s, 60s, 70s, some of my professors and mentors. What I noticed, though, is that a lot of them were, to varying degrees, both loving people and supportive people, but also very bitter people. They didn't laugh mm. a lot. They didn't smile a lot. And there was such heaviness in their spirit and such a sense of urgency in their calling that one of the things that I think going overseas did for me um, and coming back and engaging, I decided pretty early on that this was not a sprint. It was going to be a marathon. And that if I was going to sustain myself in this work, I better continue to make space for joy, for laughter, for play. Because if I don't, I'd end up like them and not in the ways that I would want to be like them, but in ways that I know I did not want to be like them. Right. Mm, mm. Um, and so as one of my uh, good friends used to say, you know, how do you take the meat and leave the bones, so to speak? Mm. Mm-hmm. And so wanted to continue in to engage in this work, but I also wanted to make peace a priority, mm. which was something that my father was very big on um, and really worked to instill in me as well. Uh, never let anyone take your peace. I think for me, since coming back in my early 20s, it's been a constant struggle to figure out, you know, what to pick up, what to put down, when to engage with the latest viral police shooting video and when to not, when to skip it Mm -hmm. for the sake of my own sanity, for the sake of my own blood pressure and overall sense of well-being, when to engage with my children about some of these national crises that we're navigating and when to leave them be and allow them to have a semblance of childhood and not have it totally stripped away. Um, Mm. Learning about the ways that men are often encouraged to take care of themselves in ways that women are not. And so Mm. turning to the women in my life and encouraging them and supporting them and also making sure that they take care of themselves. I think it was Bell Hooks who said that uh, black women are the pack mules of the planet. When I looked at my mom, I could see it. When I looked at my sister, when I looked at so many other women in my life, partners, whatever, I could see that burden and the weight on them. You know, also making it a point to try to support them and taking care of themselves and making sure that they have downtime and time for play and joy and laughter as well. It's not easy and there's certainly no formula to it. Um, It's a day by day decision but it's one that I've definitely tried to prioritize. I love how you 
talked about, you know, that, that mantra of making peace a priority, Mm -hmm. um, because I think it does, and it goes to, yeah, supporting the women in our lives. Um, and especially, you know, supporting black women, making peace a priority, you know, I just can't help but going back to this internal work and external work that they kind of go back and forth and they inform each other. And what I hear is a lot of the the human experience of really learning how to trust ourselves. My own personal experience is strange that a self-kindness practice, and I use the word self-kindness because I had so much baggage with self-love. Like mm-hmm. Kindness felt like it was a little bit easier to get a hold of, like I could get that. Mm-hmm. But what I have found is like self-kindness practice is it's really about allowing. There's been more allowance of let's say anger and Mm -hmm. maybe these darker qualities in me that or negative qualities in me that i didn't that i thought shouldn't come out i'm actually allowing them to come to the surface more Mm -hmm. i feel like i'm i'm bringing more to the conversation in my in my immediate community by doing that because Mm -hmm. you know one time i had somebody reflect back to me it's like hey it's you know, the suspiciously kind Pete here. And I was like, oh, mm. shoot. It's mm-hmm. like, am I just like putting on some front that I think other people can't really see? Mm-hmm. So I guess what I want to get to, Delma, is just like, how is that working for you? You know, recognizing these mistakes that you, you talked about that your evolution starts with recognizing the mistakes and forgiving yourself. And then just, like you said, day by day, stepping in what do you see day by day is your practice like how do you meet those mistakes how do you meet that fear and anxiety um that you mentioned yeah i appreciate that uh a reflection i would say firstly um i've had multiple conversations with uh a colleague and friend that i know you know as well uh muhammad and i have talked a lot over the years about anger and anger particularly in in men and more Mm. particularly still in men of color right um i think i've one of the things you learn early on is that you cannot afford to simply be angry whenever you want to at whomever you want to um this world does not allow for black male anger in the same way other people might be able to express it. Um, Mm -hmm. And I spent so much time trying to, in some ways, I think, suppress it, that um, it got easy to not even notice um, when I was holding it. And what I noticed would happen is every three years, almost like clockwork, um, something would trigger me and I would end up putting my, my hand through a wall somewhere you know Um, yeah i i I think yeah i hear i think we all have those fractures in our (laughs) right like in literal fracture too like uh what they call the boxes fracture i've done that to myself a few times uh over my life and it's not something i'm proud of um it wasn't until 2019 honestly very recently that i began to purposely make more space for anger um Hmm. 2019 was the year that saw me go through the process of initiating a divorce. 2019 is when I lost my father. 
2019 is when I moved into a new home, started a new job. So almost all the things they typically mm. put on the list that can lead to mm. depression and right. I was like experiencing all of those things in a matter of a few months. Um, right. And so um, having conversations with uh, Muhammad around that uh, really helped me to process a lot of that because he kept asking me over and over again, you know, what are you doing with the anger? And initially I was like, I don't even know what you're talking about. I don't have any. And it took a while and it took meditation. It took mm. uh, sitting in silence more often. It was a practice that I had started in my early twenties and had largely gotten away from because I allowed life to kind of crowd in and I started prioritizing other things. But during that time, I, I knew that I needed to get back to it. So I started doing that, but I also got therapy for the first time. Um, and I would tell folks, you know, I think I'm okay, but given everything I've had to deal with, it can't hurt to sit down and talk to somebody once a week. Yeah, yeah. And so I, uh, for the first time, started engaging in therapy. Um, and the third thing I did was I went out and got a puncher bag installed in my basement. Hmm. Um, went and got boxing gloves, the whole nine yards, and every other day, right? Um, or as needed. Um, I would just go in the basement, strap up, play some some hip hop really loud and just get busy on that bag mm. uh, for mm. about half an hour. And between all of those things, um, the support of not just, you know, Muhammad specifically, but community more broadly, best friends that I had, uh, other supports that I had, family, um, the therapy, the meditation practice, the physicality of exercise, um, particularly having something a little softer to punch on. Um, I think all of those things help to contribute to me starting a new form of practice that I'm still continuing to this day. So a lot mm -hmm. of those pieces are things that I still engage with. And I found that, um, yeah, it has served me well and made mm. me a little more in tune with what I'm feeling um, in the moment, which I think is really important. Yeah, you know, just yesterday I had the opportunity to interview a social psychologist, um, mm -hmm. and she was just talking about that, that it's just so essential to, to start any type of healing and evolution. There needs to be that awareness. I mean, that's that's kind of what we've been... Mm -hmm. seeing in in your your life is kind of a, a perfect example of, of that of how the awareness informs you and then you go but you know do your thing and then that informs awareness and back and forth and back and forth so sure yeah so yeah delma you know in in bringing it full circle so then how is that playing out in the world that you i mean holy cow like 2020 um, right. It sounds like your twenty your twenty nineteen for better or worse was prepping you for for, for twenty twenty. Yeah, definitely. You have this practice, and thanks for sharing that. How is that beginning to now inform the steps that you take in 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 blogging in of telling of this, you know, the story of the Center for Whole Communities, which, I mean, as an organization, talk about an essential an essential organization right now in this moment sure how is that informing your yeah the way that you're you're telling that story and starting to 
to bring that to people, that personal work that you're doing, then going out into community and mm -hmm. getting the rest of us on board with you going forward. Yeah, I appreciate the question. I um, have come to believe that probably my greatest single strength, which is similar to all of us, I think, lies in the vulnerability of our story. Mm -hmm. And I think my work at this point is standing in my expertise where I have it, but being very clear that a lot of what drove me, my decisions and my focus comes out of a story of this cycle of pain and learning and growth and joy and start over, right? Rinse and repeat. And so whether it's in the writing, whether it is in the Zoom presentations that we all know well in 2020, whatever format or modality it might be, I think the thing I'm, I'm consistently trying to do is invite my own sense of vulnerability and then asking folks to join me there. Because I think without that, real connection is stymied. And without that, uh, real progress is likewise halted. And so it's, it boils down to just really trying to let it be known wherever appropriate. Like, here, hey, here's the things that I feel really comfortable talking about. Here's the things where I feel like I might have something of value to offer, but here are the multitude of places where I don't. Mm -hmm. And here are the multiple ways in which my own fears and insecurities inform what I do, right? Because I can sound really confident sometimes. I can sound mm -hmm. like I know what I'm doing. And so I think part of my, what feels important to me is to let it be known that what I might present on the surface is not necessarily what I'm feeling on the inside. And if I can name that, maybe you can too. And if we can both name that, then maybe we can build community together that feels more authentic than what we previously experienced. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. Right. And then the the strangest thing happens in that Dhamma. the thing that you're most afraid of sharing that vulnerability actually becomes it's like your secret <clears throat> weapon mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like mm -hmm. it's like what draws us all into you is your willingness to kind of lay that out and then we're so, it's like we're disarmed and now we can have a conversation right yeah ideally uh, that's how it would work <laughs> right <laughs> ideally, ideally right. that's how it would work yeah Exactly. Uh, you know, and that's, that's, uh, I love that you bring that up and it kind of in closing here, it's like that I feel like is essential in the self-kindness conversation. Like mm -hmm. it can get in, in any conversation, like it can get so heady mm -hmm. and, but I feel like what we're always, whether it's, you know, whatever we name it, the, the universe or God or unconditional love, like the wisdom that's, that's that's kind of out there and underneath maybe where the rubber meets the road is when you actually live it exactly yep you know and for me the way that i say that is similar to what you're saying it's like the heart informs me and can i get my head kind of out of the way so i can i can live it right into the world mm -hmm. rather than say well you know i can't do that because of this it's just it's like no can i just boom, take that heart-led action. Can I do it again and again? And again, yeah, exactly, exactly. Mm. Well, Delma, how can people 
find out more about you and what you're doing in the world and following you and and hopefully when you start your podcast how can how can people learn more about you yeah so i um right now one of my goals for this year is to create a um web page from myself as an individual i uh have not done that yet. And so right now I always send folks over to CWC to their main webpage. And then that's where a lot of the blogging is. And then obviously the bio is there and I always encourage folks to keep up with our blog posts. I try to get on there at least once a month and I'm looking to kick it up a notch to twice a month <laughs> eventually. Well, Delma, thanks so much for taking the time today to share it's it's really a privilege to to sit with you thanks for having this conversation today yeah thank you for inviting me to it i really appreciate the chance wow so much that delma has to offer to us in the world and so grateful that he was able to share um you know i walk away with something that he said in there about how you know, it, it's not until he got still, it wasn't until he had that invitation to be reflective that he noticed all of what was going on in him and his vulnerability and his willingness to share that, uh, how that's become a strength for him. So where are we missing some of those cues in our own lives? Where are the things just coming up time and time again that we aren't able to yet take a moment to just be still and notice them be still and maybe reach out for some help or some accountability and be still and just notice what's going on you know sometimes i've said that being willing to feel what's coming up that actually can be a practice in self-kindness being willing to notice what's here right now as you're listening. Thank you so much for traveling with me. And again, I remind, want to remind you that we don't have to go it alone. Come on over to PeteSibley.com. Check out at Self Kindness with Pete and see the conversation that's happening. Set up a time you and I can chat. That's what I'm doing with people right now. With, aside from this podcast, I'm also sitting with people and we are courageously stepping into a self-kindness practice. And it encompasses everything. In these calls with people, I talk about money. In these calls with people, I talk about relationship. I talk about past history. And, you know, I'm not a therapist. But what I am is I'm someone who has walked the walk myself. I have walked self-kindness into my life and have made it a cornerstone for my own existence. And I believe it is how I get to be of value in this world. So I want that for you. I want a practice for you that reminds you you're worthy of self-kindness, that you are worthy of good, that you receiving good and self-kindness as other people are struggling doesn't make you a bad person. It makes you more available for the struggle. Thank you for tuning in. Again, if you enjoyed this podcast, would you share it with a friend? Would you take a moment right now to just go down and rate the show or subscribe to the show? It doesn't cost anything to subscribe to the show. You just hit the subscribe button. All of that helps to build 
this self-kindness conversation in the world, helps to get it out there, helps to get voices like Delma Jackson out into the world or Alexandra Fuller out into the world or Hannah Owen or any of the guests that I've had on the show. It gives them a greater platform to share this important work in the world. And I'll leave you with an invitation. Reach out. Reach out to somebody who is able to listen. Reach out to a friend and either share kindness or be vulnerable in asking for somebody to share kindness with you. You have that right, and I invite you to do that. I'm here if you want to reach out, and I can be that person for you as well. So I love you. We'll see you next week, and I'll leave you with a song of ours. produced and edited by me, Pete Sibley. If you would like to support Self-Kindness with Pete, please email peterksibley at gmail or visit petesibley.com. And thanks.